0: Well, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, I will, after prayer, read verse 1 through 13, that'll be our text this morning, and let's ask the Lord's blessing and enlightenment upon his word. Let's pray. Now, blessed Father, we come in the name of Jesus, our mediator, our prophet, our priest, and king, and we pray for enlightenment and understanding. Lord, we pray for a loving, ruling hand in our life to lead us and guide us and encourage us. We pray, O oh Lord, that there would be the great blessing of, Lord, showing us the errors of our ways and cleansing us of our sins and refreshing us and renewing us, Lord, as we hear your word preached. We pray, O Lord, as we look into this parable of the ten virgins that, Lord, we would be stimulated under vigilance, Lord, that we would be excited to carry on in the Christian life. Even in these uncertain times, Lord, we would have a greater degree, Lord, of understanding what you require of us, Lord, in these seasons that we find ourselves in. Lord, come and bless the reading of your word, bless the preaching of your word, and bless the hearing of your word for your glory and for the edification of the saints. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 25. Hear the word of the Lord. And then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. And now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with them to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour and thus ends the reading of God's word you may be seated now beloved if you are if you remember you may be thinking to yourself well pastor stanfield has already preached a sermon on the 10 parable or on the 10 virgins a parable on the 10 virgins and i have and i encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon That I preached back in July. But this sermon this morning is not necessarily part two, though it could be, but it's a standalone sermon that I wanted to, I wanted really to take the opportunity to use the parable to highlight a very important doctrine and truth that we can glean out of the text. I want to at least spend this Lord's day, if not one or two more in really squeezing the parable and getting more out of it. You know, I'm not afraid to do so. And I don't mind preaching three or four or five sermons on a single parable. In fact, I'm taking great delight in the study and certainly the preaching of it. And from what I'm hearing, I believe some of you are enjoying it as well. Beloved, this Parable is couched in a series of three, sim- very similar to the uh, the tri parables we looked at the last several weeks. Noticed even in that series, those parables, the confrontation Jesus had, the teaching that he gave, the to, to condemn the his antagonizers was three parables. This, here we have three parables. We have the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and then the parable of the final judgment. And, we, and I want to take enough time to work through this chapter so that we might really be impressed with the emphasis that our Christ is, well, making at the time that he teaches us, but also make application to our day as well. The New Testament is a very unique time. I mean, we see the turmoil, we see the friction, we see the aggravation that is taking place as Jesus comes and reveals the true and real will of the father and the opposition that he faces. And yet there's a unavoidable transition that's taking place, a transition that, well, the enemies of Christ and many of them at that time found in the visible church cannot stop. They thought they could, and they thought by even putting Jesus to death that somehow they would, it would stop this change of religion, if you will. They really believed that those who followed Jesus were cultish. They were of a cult. And we find it in the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts, you can see that the word Christian was not an, a word of uh, admiration. It was really very similar to the word Puritan, where they would be almost spit coming out of your mouth when you mentioned the Puritans because of how they were hated in their time, these Christians were hated because they were the followers and the disciples of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't a term of admiration. It was really a condemning term. If you were a Christian, you were one to be watched out for. You were one to be avoided and even persecuted. It was okay. It was perfectly fine for the visible church to send their... Soldiers after you. There's zealots after you. Paul even testified before becoming a Christian, did he not, that he was part of that group and even led the way, if you will, of putting those who professed the name of Christ in prison. We could even highlight the horrible martyrdom of Stephen in the very beginning of Acts, can't we? That's how they treated those who were following Christ. It was a very tumultuous season for the church. There was a transition taking place. It was breaking loose from its, what we might call the old covenant, the, the old administration of the covenant of grace, and, and moving into the more blossom, the blossoming into the fullness of the covenant of grace whereby the whole world would be blessed by the gospel. Now, that was the purpose to begin with. That old administration had a shelf life to it. It had an expiration date on it. I'm not going to address that this morning. That is something for us to look at later on, something for you to study on your own. It was a season that was, well, that was designed to pass away when when the fullness of Christ's came into reality, all of that would pass away and then there would be this glorious gospel dispensation whereby all the families of the earth would begin, right, to be blessed by the ministry of Christ as mediator. It's in this setting that Jesus gives this series of parables really flowing out of this Lecture he gave to his disciples called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. That's really where the thought begins, and we'll look at that in just a second. But during this time, it wasn't just that some couldn't let go of the old ways and Because they were not of Christ, because they had not had their eyes opened, they didn't see the glorious expansion of the kingdom of God in the spiritual true sense of it. But there were some who did embrace Christ. And you can imagine after generations and generations, what, 42 generations from the time of David to the time of Christ, that's a long time. They had worshipped a certain way, and those that had come to embrace Christ had had even had their eyes opened. You can imagine that transition that would take place from the old way to the new way of spirit and truth. And that's why many during the time of, of, particularly after the death and resurrection of Christ, and the time of the apostles in the Book of Acts, you had christians worshiping on saturday and sunday that there was a season whereby there was great tolerance extended to the people of god as they made changes in their thinking and their lives and their habits and their worship so that they might what begin to move away from the shadowy things unto the more reality of the things And Paul begs the church to be tolerant of one another, to be patient with one another, to understand what's taking place. Some made the transition easily, some did not. But it is in this time that as Jesus is going to bring this old administration to an extreme halt, and he did this in AD 70 where he brought great judgment upon the nation of Israel and through the hands of the pagan army Rome brought a cease to the worship of God's people by the destruction of the temple. It's a very unique time in history, is it not? And Jesus begins to He really begins to prepare the people for this transition, for this this awakening, for this tumultuous period of time, for this great destruction. Jesus begins to prepare the people. Here's what's coming. Here's what you can look for. Here's what you're going to see. And that's the point of Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, I'm obviously not going to read the text for the sake of time. In Matthew 24, the Lord lays out before his people his coming in judgment upon Israel and his coming in judgment upon the world. Two different things, okay? If you look there toward the end Of Matthew 24, I'm going to begin to set the context for our sermon this morning. Now, the sermon this morning comes from verse 13 Be on the alert, be on the alert, then, for you do not know the day nor the hour, let's finish the thought, that our Lord comes. The parable is to encourage us to be prepared, to live that life of profession and preparedness and prudence that we are ready when that day comes. Well, you look back in Matthew 24 and you look at the first time Jesus says it in verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert. Same phrase. For you do not know which day your Lord is is coming. So there's a great parenthesis in this parable. He's, he finishes this thought right above it. And, and this is the doctrine. This is what I want to lay before us this morning. Let me give you the doctrine. The doctrine is that certain times, certain times require an extra measure of, of attendance to the means of grace. There are certain times in history that require a greater measure of attendance to the means of grace. And that's what our Lord is teaching us here. Like I said, this was a very unique time. Jesus is walking the earth. He's about to lay down his life for the sins of God's elect. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to ascend into heaven. He's going to empower his disciples to preach and spread the gospel. He's going to, if you will, uh, begin what we know as the Christian church. He's going to lay the foundation of the Christian church so that going onward from that time, there'll be this great gospel outpouring among the nations. How else can we say it? Well, we could say it this way, that living diligently in uncertain times is what's required of us. We must remain vigilant. Now that word comes from the Greek translation or the Latin translation of the Greek word Right there, found in verse 42 of chapter 4 and verse 13 of chapter 5. That is, be on the alert. That's the command. That's what God, that's what the scriptures, that's what Jesus is teaching us. That's the emphatic commandment. Be on the alert, be vigilant. Now, let me give you a little context of the word, and we'll get into the lesson as we survey Scripture. What does the word "vigilant" mean? What does it mean to be alert? Well, I think it speaks for itself. I don't think there's any way we can miss it, really, but it means to be watchful, to be on the lookout. It it means to be sober-minded, clear-headed, able to discern, able to uh, give discretion to matters. It means certainly to give strict attention to detail, to be cautious, but to be active. It's not a passive thing. Uh, Being alert is not passive. There's an Action required. It's it's an active verb. It's something that we have to do, right? It's not a matter of being passive. It suggests that there's something that can be lost if we're not. Now, that's important. That's an important feature to the context here. That is, if we're not vigilant. That is, it's not just a call to be inactive. it's not just a call to be busy, it's not simply our Lord calling us to be worker bees, it's not just that the church ought to be busy without accomplishing anything, no, the idea here in the context is that we would exercise a degree of watchfulness and vigilance over the means of grace so that we Do not lose them. If you look back at the parable, notice there is this sense of loss with the five foolish virgins or bridesmaids. They lost, what did they lose? Well, they lost the opportunity to usher in the bridegroom. They lost the festivity, if you will, the celebration. They did not get to participate in that. They lost the participation. They were excluded. And then it escalated into the shutting of the door. The shutting of the door, as I said in my previous sermon, kind of it presents this finality to the lost, you're not going to gain anything. It's done. Your loss is permanent and you should be vigilant like the five wise bridesmaids. One of the reasons I wanted to readdress this parable with you this morning because of our nations, the context, the reality that we've, Uh, stand with our nation and the, 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 the aggravation and the heightened hatred that our federal government and many in power have for Christ and the means of grace, the church and the worship of God's people, things that we take for granted that are under assault And in the conversation, as we have seen in the past, in the last previous years, that the government will assume upon itself an authority that it does not have to stop the people of God from worshiping him. And they do not have that authority. They do not sit above God. God in Christ is the superior of superiors and they do not have that authority to usurp what Christ has commanded of us, which is to what? Worship him and make use of the means of grace. They don't have that authority. They don't possess that authority, even though they think they do. We must be sober minded. We must be able to do, to recognize the reality that we live in and recognize the 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 fever pitch that is intensifying week after week with the kingship and headship of Christ our Lord, right? We want to be vigilant. What is this vigilance going to look like in our season of life? What is it going to look like in this period of time that we live in? And that's really the question I want to answer, or at least begin to help us to answer. If we're going to heed the commandment to be vigilant, obviously we're going to have to understand what that is and what that looks like. And that's the purpose of this series of messages. So beloved, I want to begin showing you the context helping us understand why this commandment is important in light of the context and then certainly we'll look at various passages of scripture that that help us understand vigilance and then we will make some application to that look back at Matthew 24 let's back up into the chapter a little bit and we're Like I said, surveying the scriptures, if you will, setting in context this important parable. In Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus, again teaching this Olivet discourse, says, But the day and the hour no one knows. Now he's talking about his coming at the end of time. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took away or took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then there will be two men in the field and one will be taken and one left. And two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will be left. Now let me stop there and then just provide some commentary to what I just read. Now from an eschatological point of view, let me go ahead and answer the question before you even ask me. Well, I thought we were post-millennials. Well, I'm a post-millennialist when it comes to eschatology. And these last two verses in 40 and 41 provide no problem for my eschatology. What I want to bring to your attention, though, Jesus is doing something really clever here. If you look at verse 40, he says, There are two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. One and one. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will, let, will be left. One and one. Five wise bridesmaids and five foolish bridesmaids. One and one. Now, what's, what's Jesus doing here? Well, I submit this interpretation I think what Jesus does here is he brilliantly brings to bear that there are only two kinds of groups in the earth. There's only two. There's only two kind of people. There are those that believe him and worship him and serve him and love him, and there are those that do not. And these that do not are classified in a variety of ways just like true believers can be classified as weak, strong, whatever. There's only two beloved. There's no escaping that, 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 from the very beginning, our Lord Jesus sets that concept in play in Genesis three, when he talks about the seed of the serpent, right? Who are the seed of the serpent going forward in Genesis? Well, it's the canes of the world. It, it, it's the Lamechs of the world. It's, it's the generation that in Noah's day despised and hated the preaching of the gospel and the ways of righteousness. It's the seed of Satan. It's the seed, sons of darkness. And then he says there is the seed of the woman. And he says that there are, there's conflict between these two, that he has placed enmity, there's, there, there is this, this enmity, there is this genuine hatred between the people of the devil and the people of God. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 2 when he talks about all of us being born in sin and born in darkness and being of the family of Satan until what? Until God has mercy upon us. And he takes us out of this kingdom of darkness and he translates us into the kingdom of light. Beloved, there's only two people there's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, there's the kingdom of men. And the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven. Now, I believe that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, let's back that up because in Noah's day, there were two groups of people. There were Noah's family, now, that was the visible church. They were the ones that worshiped God. They were the ones who offered the sacrifices by faith. I mean, Noah, uh, they were the ones that was preaching of the gospel. And then there was everyone else. And notice he says that that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, what's wrong with giving in marriage and eating and drinking? What's wrong with that? Well, nothing except they did not make use of the means of grace that Noah provided them. They did not heed the preaching of the word Noah preached. They did not heed the visible worship of God. See, you can see this, can't you? They were doing all of, they were living life apart from the means of grace. That means of salvation, they, again, by not, you know, again, Even the way we eat and drink and marry and given in marriage is not like the world. For we give to the glory of God, our daughters and our sons in marriage, we give to the glory of God, we pray before our food, we thank him for the bounty and the blessing that he's provided for us. We, brothers and sisters, listen. It's not the same thing. You can do all of these things and they're good in and of themselves, but they miss the reality that a judgment is coming. And Noah preached that. And the Bible tells us he preached it for 120 something years. There's judgment coming. And they continued on in the regular things of life with never, ever giving themselves over to the gospel, repentance, and faith, and the means of grace to preserve them from the wrath and judgment to come. A very unique time in the days of Noah in this sense, beloved. I mean, it's, you know the flood's never going to happen again. That was a, a true event. And it typified, it was a typical event. It certainly typifies what? The judgment at the end of the world. When men are going about their business and doing ordinary things, judgment comes for us all. The question will be, are we vigilant? Are we alert? Are we ready? Have we prepared ourselves? Had we made a credible profession of faith? Are we prudent in the things that we put our hands to? Are we prepared for that day? That's the question. And I think Jesus sums it up, just these two groups in the world, just like the the church is summed up in the five virgins. There are those that are prudent and wise and those that are foolish. Let me just revisit the parable, and maybe this is as far we get this morning as I set the groundwork for the coming Sundays, but I mean, notice the parable itself in verse 3, 20, in chapter 25, verse 34, when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Now, we can easily prove that oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit when there was anointing in the Old Testament. We look at that later. But the point being, beloved, that the visible church, as represented by the ten bridesmaids, a mixed congregation, those that took their, th- their salvation seriously and those that didn't. They had no spirit in them. They were, they were no preparedness. They, they didn't have a, they had a profession of faith, but it wasn't a credible profession of faith. They were going about all of the regular duties of life, but not really attending the means of Grace. They didn't own or possess the reality of their profession. Therefore, they had no real preparedness to make because they saw no need for it. You turn back over to chapter 24 and you can see the progression that our Lord makes here in verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert. There's our word. Be vigilant. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And notice this minor illustration he uses, our minor parable in verse 43. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will that was illustrated by the point he made up about Noah. When you least expect it, it can't be predicted. It cannot be prophesied, and that's why so many have, have, have uh, of quote modern day prophets have been made foolish by their predictions of when the Lord's coming back. No man knows. Now, notice verse 45 as he continues to set the stage for the parable. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Now, notice the question he asks. Now, again, we're setting the stage. We're understanding the context here. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of the household? Now, he's obviously talking about his ministers. The house is the church. He's obviously talking about the scribes and the Pharisees and how unfaithful they have been. He's now speaking to his disciples and he's helping them understand that what is owed in this position? What does this office, what does this um, um, calling require? Faithfulness. To whom? The Master. The church doesn't belong to any one man or any session or any denomination or any large group. The church belongs to the Lord. It is His church. And He is its lawgiver. And He is the one that commands the church. He is the one that sets forth these doctrines and these teachings. He is the one setting forth what we should know and believe and what we should do. And he says also, he put a charge of his household to give them their proper, or to give them their food in proper time. And I think that's why I felt compelled to talk about well, what's required of us. What does vigilance look like for us in in the 21st century under such rank tyranny? What does it look like? I think ministers of the gospel ought to be answering this question for the congregations. They ought to be preaching on these things, and we certainly ought to be challenging the status quo of our governments, whether they be federal or state, in their neglect of the living and sovereign God, the king of the nations. What we are facing in our day and time is unprecedented in the history of this nation, unprecedented. Far too long we have had the many blessings of God bestowed upon us. Far too long we've had the liberties and prosperity of our hands, the ability to speak openly and freely, the ability to gather and worship him openly, The ability to go about and preach the gospel and call the elect to the church, to Christ. And this is what happens when we take things for granted. This is what happens when we neglect our duty to call upon the civil magistrate and her sins, to call them sins. It was an evil thing that the church did when it confined the preaching and preachers to simply the gospel message of Christ and the Savior and sins itself without calling the, the, the world and, and all who live in it to submission in Christ. And that was part of the great failure of the Southern church. Not to call out sin, not to address national issues, not to address those things that are going on in the community, but to simply confine it to that just preaching narrowly the gospel that's in Christ. And we must preach that gospel, but we must never fail to be salt and light to the whole world, to the whole community, and to all who live in it, whether they be private persons or whether they be public persons and civil magistrates. In verse 46, he says, "'Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions.'" that if that evil slave says in his heart my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Simply put Jesus says when I have placed my officers and my ministers over my house and they Abuse the sheep, I shall deal harshly with them. Strong words. But remember, Jesus loves his sheep. He loves his bride, and he doesn't want anybody abusing his bride. He doesn't put ministers over the bride to be abused. He puts ministers over the bride to lead them to vigilance. To prudence, to a credible profession of faith, to preparedness, to understand the day and time in which they live so that they can do the will of God and be faithful in his sight. So that his desire, the ministers, the session, all that preach the gospel, all who have this office, so that the, all that under their charge and their care will stand before the Lord and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the goal. That none would be found lacking, but all would be found whole and complete in Christ. That's what Paul says. That's my aim. That's my goal. That's my desire for you is to present you before the Lord. Whole and complete, mind, body, soul. Whole and complete. Let's let's look at Hebrews chapter ten, and this may be one of the final points I can make this morning, and as we get into this idea and concept of vigilance, but. I do think that it's important for us to rest in these things and to know that certain times do require certain things of us. And as the days become challenging and uh, testing, dark, our responsibility is not to shrink back, but to be active and vigilant in making use of the means of grace in a way that that gives us that persevering strength and hope and joy and love to continue in those moments and in those seasons of life. Because this is not something that's passing away in November. I'm talking about our problem. It's not going away in November. November is systemic corruption and error and pollution and godlessness in this land and it must be rooted out and it will be not it will not be rooted out in a month in one election cycle it will be rooted out by god taking his finger and cleaning it out himself you look at hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 and 25, uh, the the book of Hebrews was written to encourage and incite those believing Hebrews not to fall away from the faith in difficult times. Well, they were being persecuted and they were facing hard challenges, life-threatening challenges, imprisonment, and The writer, I mean, there are all these warnings, and they are all related to the means of grace, primarily the preaching of the Word of God. But look at verse 23. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, what is this day that's drawing near? This day of judgment, this day of trouble? I believe in this context, the judgment of A.D. 70. They were being prepared, and Jesus does that in Matthew 24, He tells them what to look for and how to respond to the signs of that coming judgment and what they should do. But notice what he says here. Look at the means of grace. Verse 23. What's the first one? Confession of faith. This confession of faith, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Our confession of faith. What's our our confession of hope? Well, our hope is who? Christ. But it's not simply that Christ is working and saving us. It's that Christ is saving us in a particular context. Christ is saving us in this world, right? In 2022, Christ is saving us in the United States. We're not in Saudi Arabia. We're not in the UK. We're in the United States with a particular branch of government, with a particular group of leaders. That that hope of confession is I won't abandon whom I have my hope in because he is saving and working in me here and now for his own good purposes and my good. For he who promised is faithful. Promised what? Well, he promised to save us. But he also promised, look, to save, saving, save, that all along the way he is saving us. How? How is God saving you right now? With the preaching of the gospel. Through prayer. Through the, the encouragement of the hymns we sing. You know, have you ever taken the time to actually notice the words of the hymns, the truth? What, do we just sing hymns because we're a bunch of fuddy-duddies, stick-in-the-mud people? You know, we'd have frozen chosen. No. We can sing a variety of hymns as long as they're true. And as long as our hearts are singled out to the truth and not necessarily to the melody, the music itself, right? Not overpowering and overtaking the very words that we are speaking because these hymns, as one Puritan said, are but verbal melody, uh, prayers of melody to the Lord. What a beautiful picture. I visited a church one time for a, a baptism of of a family member and it was not a church that <clears throat> I would typically attend, but nevertheless out of love and respect for my family, I wanted to show my support and and went and I, I know what it requires to go into the worship of the Lord and to test my heart lay myself out there and make use as best I can to what's presented to me. But the music was so, I don't even know how to explain it. It was so earthly. I I couldn't even hear myself. I could not even hear my own voice. And my, my voice is, ragged and rugged and you know noticeable I couldn't even hear it the, the the beat I could feel in my chest now I've been to some concerts in my younger days and there wasn't much difference the point I want to make and, I, and I'm not in this mode of condemning all of it what I want to say it didn't really feel like worship there was was a lack of reverence. There was a lack of esteem. There was a lack of of having our hearts and senses drawn up to something greater and more majestic than ourselves. That's what worship is. That we would gather to worship a superior and that our affection would rise to the occasion and that's why we lift our voices in praise and adoration. We offer up these melody of prayers as, as the means of grace that has an effect upon us, beloved. And the worshiper right here, he says, "Let listen, he who promised is faithful. He's the rock of refuge. I read that psalm of a call to worship on purpose. Go back to it. God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. That's what the the writer of Hebrews is saying. He who promised is faithful. This is a river whose streams make glad the city of God and the holy dwelling places of the most high. You know what this river is? The means of grace. The psalmist is talking about this river that flows into the city. The city of what? The city of God. The visible church. To make glad the people of God. That's the means of grace. And I don't, I, I can't remember who said this, what Puritan said this, but it's It's true. He called the means of grace the kisses of God, where well, he comes as our bridegroom and he kisses the cheek of all his beloved. The writer of Hebrews says do not draw away but rather consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking your own assembling together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What a picture. Though, the, though it, its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God and the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. And God will help her when morning dawns. The nation made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Where do we, how do we exhibit that truth? How do we keep the doctrine that in certain times require an extra measure of attendance to the means of grace? By attending with greater delight and joy and expectation and a desire to know. Listen, listen. If we only have this moment, what's required of you? All your attention. If this is all you have, if if, if they come and shut the doors, does Chalcedon cease being a church? No. No, you're the church. We are the church. If they tell us we can't worship are we going to go home and just join another club? No. We're going to find a way to make glad these the streams to partici- participate in the streams that make the city of God very happy. If that means meeting at midnight meet at midnight. It's nothing new. That means meeting early in the morning? We'll meet early in the morning. If we have saints that can't meet with us, guess what we do? We go to their home and we sing hymns and we pray with them and we encourage them and we encourage them to love and edification. We never cease being the church, beloved. Never, ever do we cease being vigilant. For we know. That these great privileges cannot be taken away. Oh, they can try. The only way they can take them away is if we are not vigilant and we give them up. But we will not do that. For we will be the five wise virgins and we'll be ready and we'll do whatever it takes to be ready to make use, and great use of the means of grace. And we'll make sure that all of our beloved here know that they're part of the family of God. Let's pray. And blessed Father, we did not get as far as, Lord, I intended, but your will be done. Lord, let this concept of vigilance be on our minds. Let the love of God be in our hearts that Lord we're thinking about these things we're contemplating them we're meditating upon them and that there is a preparedness there is a heightened sensitivity there is there are things that we need to be doing in these desperate days that Lord are uncertain uncertain we don't know what tomorrow holds in a nation that is in such turmoil and under such ungodly leadership. Lord, at any time, at any time they could strike, Lord, to prove how powerful they are, and we must be prepared, and we must be ready. We must have our eyes wide open, ready to act, ready to respond by faith, and love, and resilience that is only found in the Spirit dwelling us and in the name of our mediator, Christ, our Lord and King. For we do not fear man, and we fear you, O Lord. We fear you in godly fear and adoration. So come, Lord, as we come now to partake of this Lord's Supper, this meal, bless it, O Lord. We pray even right now that you would sanctify the elements, that you would set apart the the wine and the bread for the spiritual feeding of your people, that we would feast upon Christ by faith and be strengthened, O Lord, in our resolve, our desires, and our hope, our joy, and our love. Bless this communion meal as you have the word preached. And let each saint leave here, Lord, encouraged, edified, and built up. Lord, for this is your kingdom and all for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.